Hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR UK podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Ben Blissett, TLDR UK's lead writer, and Rory Taylor, TLDR Global lead writer. Hello. Yeah. Um, before we get into the sort of normal day-to-day of all this, uh, we should just say, at the end of last year, we wrote a newspaper called Too Long. Um, you might have seen it advertised on sort of the other channels, or maybe even here on TLDR Podcasts. It was intended as sort of like year in review, uh, economist style, like run through what's happened in the past 12 months. Obviously, we're now slightly into 2024, um, but the paper's still as relevant as it was, and we still have some spare copies. So we've done a little flash sale for the very reasonable price of just £5.99. You can now get a physical copy. There's also, if you can't wait for it and you just want to have it emailed to you instantaneously, uh, there's also a digital copy for £3.99. Um, I should say, like, it, I know obviously it was it was supposed to be sort of read at the end of the year, but like all of it's evergreen. There isn't really anything that's super time sensitive. Uh, maybe like some of the Israel stuff, um, but a, a lot of it is is still relevant and still very readable. And we are, you know, jokes aside, really quite proud of it. Um, I think it's pretty good. So if you like to support the channel, please do go, go get a digital one. It's nice and easy. Um, anyway, that being said, let's get into the main bit of the podcast. Um, so today in the main story, we're going to be talking about sort of two things. We're going to be talking about this this plot um, that's been circulating in the, the right-wing tabloids here in the UK to, to oust Sunak, um, led by people like David Frost, uh, who was obviously a, he was a chief Brexit negotiator back in those days. Um, and we'll also be talking about the new plan, I think it was announced in the last like 24 hours or so, um, to ban vapes, or at least disposable vapes, that the government has announced. Um, but before we get into that, as is custom on this podcast, we are going to do our underreported stories. So my underreported story uh, is from Kenya. Um, the High Court in Kenya has ruled that a deployment of police officers to Haiti that was meant to be led by Kenya, that that deployment is unlawful. So it can't actually oh. go ahead. And I think it's quite a big story um, for a few reasons. One is, uh, I think the situation in Haiti is massively underreported. It's the, the state has basically totally collapsed there in the last few years. The president was assassinated in 2021. They've had an acting president since then. All of the elected institutions and officials have expired effectively. So there is effectively no, no uh, proper state. There's a huge amount of gang violence, kidnappings. Um, there's outbreaks of disease shortages of all sorts of things and i think gangs now control something like 80 percent of the capital and um amid all of that the acting president had been calling for this un-backed deployment of some kind of security force to try and stabilize the situation and last year it was finally approved by the un security council and it was meant to be led by kenya um by deployment of kenyan police officers um because no there hadn't really been any countries that were willing to lead it apart from kenya but now this high court in kenya has said this is unlawful um, so it's kind of thrown the whole mission into doubt um, and kind of leaving people in Haiti, you know, not really sure what's going to happen. Um, so I think that's pretty underreported yeah. story. I mean, what happened in Haiti is obviously like an example of a complete state failure. Mm. You know, you're often talking slightly hyperbolic terms yeah. about like country X becoming a failed state. I mean, yeah. we're very guilty of that, obviously, on the TLDR Global, but that I mean, it really is a proper state failure yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and it's always sad when you compare it to the, the Dominican Republic, yeah. which is right on the same door. island. Yeah. yeah. Um, which has actually been relatively successful in both economic and political terms mm. over how many, what, last 50 years or so. Um, and the, the comparison is really quite glaring. 
Anyway, Ben, what is, what's your underwater story? Yeah, well, mine is about the Chego Islands, which I know that you wrote a video on relatively Very recently. About this topic. Um, but I thought I'd bring it up again because no one watched it. Um, <laughs> so, Rich, so, you don't want to get into this here. <laughs> I will, so I just, I will I, ruin I, you in public. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do the little cheap dig. Um, anyway, it, was, it is a genuinely very interesting story. I think it was, it was a well-made video, Zach. It's a very well-made video. Big uh, So, no, it was... It, it, basically, the reason I think it's underreported is just that we're very involved in it. Um, it's part of the British um, Indian Ocean Territory, so a British overseas territory. So the UK's sort of inherently involved in this. It's been part of the um, British overseas territory for, for ages. It was originally French. They, there was a lot of, um, I think, slaves that had gone over... Um, there, France signed it over to the UK in the Treaty of Paris, so it'd been part of, of British territory since then. Uh, but in like the 1960s, the US wanted to build a military base on there, um, so they moved all the, the Chagasians out and told them they couldn't come back, and that, that has been the case for the last 40 or 50 years, and they now reside in Mauritius. Now, um, Mauritius has taken quite a hostile stance towards the UK in the last few years, um, specifically in 2021, they passed a bill that said if the, you know if you're in Mauritius and you refer to the islands as being British, you could be liable to um, criminal sanctions, including up to 10 years in prison. So they've taken a very hostile uh, uh, stance towards the UK uh, and their claim of sovereignty there. Um, but in the last few days, a lot of like right-wing think tanks have been pushing uh, Sunak to sort of like be more aggressive towards Mauritius in this regard, uh, specifically to cut aid payments. So it's about three million pounds that we send to Mauritius. They want him to sort of cut that as a retaliation against their their sort of um, you know these rules that they've introduced, um, specifically about um, the, the like the Chagos Islands and uh, sovereignty. So yeah, it's it's really interesting, and it's also interesting because the sort of like um, the cabinet ministers that are very much you know have authority over this. So Grant Shapps, who's the Defence Secretary, and Lord Cameron. The Foreign Secretary opposed ceding control back to Mauritius uh, in this regard, and Boris Johnson has claimed that giving up the archipelago um, would damage the security ties with the White House because, obviously, as I said, you know they built the whole reason that this is sort of kicking off is because uh, the US has um, a naval base there. So it's all very interesting. I think it's you know it, it was a very good topic to do a video on Thank you very much. because. It's, you know, we're, we're very involved in this, and I think people don't often often uh, know about that and overseas territory. I think there's an interesting sort of uh, link with the uh, ICJ ruling on Israel from the other day, because I think the UK has twice lost, uh, or has been on the, you know, the losing side of international court rulings on the Chagos mm-hmm. Islands, and we, or the UK government has just rejected those, and it just kind of goes to show the... Uh, the limited ability for like world courts to actually enforce what are technically legally binding decisions. Um, so yeah. I think that's kind of yeah interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think that, I mean the, the, I think the ICJ rulings aren't as absolutely against the the British as you might um, suppose. But yeah, I think the it's, it is one of those where um, you mentioned that most of them went to Mauritius, most of the Chagossians. I'm mm. not sure that's actually true. I mean, it's quite hard to like find out quite where they went to. Quite a lot of them went to the Seychelles. Um, and parts of basically like the the eastern the southern but tip it of is India. certainly true that there is a portion of them went to to, to Mauritius. Yeah, but I mean, look, I don't want to get into. It. Please yes. go watch the whole video there. But just geographically as well, if you look at a map, I mean, the Chagos Islands are, are miles away from mm. Mauritius. They're something like two and a half thousand kilometers away, and they're far closer to the Seychelles. And I can't remember. There's an archipelago that's like oh, a little bit like seven hundred kilometers north. Um, that perhaps would instinctively make more sense uh, to administer those territories. But 
Whatever. It's, it is a really interesting story. And it's one of those sort of like, another reminder of the sort of um, the shadow of colonialism, the long mm. shadow of colonialism. Um, it's also something, by the way, that I think the Americans have got away with very well here because they've basically said, oh, it's up to you guys, the British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, but it's they're the, the ones that built the naval base. Yeah, and the Americans are the ones who really don't want to lose to the Seychelles because yeah. I'm mean, into the to Mauritius. And Mauritius have said, oh, we promise you a 99 year lease on the islands. But what? It's just a verbal promise. Mm. And Mauritius has one of those, like, it's one of those island territories which has become this, like, focal point in the wider, like, Sino American <clears throat> rivalry where domestic politicians are sort of, like, constantly trying to be bored off by either side. Um, and you can imagine from the American perspective the idea of let's just say like a, a sort of anti-American government coming in in Mauritius, and that would be that would be pretty spooky for them, especially if Mauritius controlled the the Chagos Islands. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think in a sense it was never going to happen, given that the Americans have that base, yeah. and that if we, you know, sort of implied that we were open to it, I'm sure the Americans would be a bit more vocal about their opposition to the plan. But they've got away scot-free here. They yeah. look like the it good is guys. Remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to the main part of the uh, video. Do you want to start with the vape pan or the vape pan, the vape ban or the plot to oust Sunak? Should we do vapes? Start yeah, vapes. go on then. So what's happened in the last day or so? So the government has sort of announced and remarkably announced on Lad Bible of um, all of the outlets that they're going to be introducing a ban on on vapes. I just, I, I, sorry, I just, I really want to, I think this is just remarkable that they've announced it on Lad Bible of all fucking places. I mean, some people on Twitter have just sort of shared some of the articles and things they were posting about 10 years ago yeah. when they started. And the idea that it's gone from that to now where the government are making announcements on policy is just genuinely mad. Like, what world are we living yeah, in? I, know. I don't but, think the government should be on Twitter, let alone Lab Bible. I mean, it's mad. I know, I know. I, I mean, if anyone's watching, if you have to just have a look at some of the posts, and if you don't know who they are, have a look at the post from about 10 years ago because it's mad that they're now making announcements on there. But anyway, they are. So they announced yesterday that they're going to be banning, and the key thing here is disposable vapes. So um, I don't really know how much the audience knows about for, are from the UK, but it is a big thing at the minute uh, amongst... Oh, I sound so old. <laughs> it's apparently <laughs> a big thing amongst children these days. Yeah, it's a vaping epidemic. Yeah, it's a vaping epidemic. Apparently it's a thing the youth are into these days. Um, but no, so... The, 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 <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the whole thing about them is that they sell them in these crazy flavours and... um <laughs> so stuffy. He's, these crazy flavours. I mean, they've yeah. got watermelon. What is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're designed, they're, you know, they're designed very much, if you see them, to appeal to kids. And obviously kids aren't allowed to buy them. They've got nicotine or... No, they don't. They, they do have nicotine in. Some of them have nicotine in. Um, so under 18s can't buy them, but they often do. And there's this statistic that... Um, the Action on Smoking and Health charity found that um, about 7.6% of 11 to 17-year-olds um, vape regularly or occasionally at the minute, which is up from only 4.1% in 2020. And if you just think about that, like 7% of kids are vaping, which is, you know, yeah. is really, really not good. And it's it's largely driven by these disposable vapes that are a lot more branded towards children, you know, very bright colours, very sort of um, almost like childish sort of... And they're cheap um, as well. Yeah, they're very yeah. cheap. Um, so it's sort of bad, bad for kids, kind of bad for the environment as well. Got lithium batteries in, which can't really be disposed of very well. So the government has decided to sort of take action on this and just ban them outright. Key thing is they're not banning vapes overall. It's just these disposable ones, these ones that are marketed towards children and are very bad environmentally because of these lithium batteries. Um, so that, that's what they're doing. They've promised that they're going to 
So the, the health secretary said that this this legislation will go through before the time of the next check. Why are you smiling at me? You're just so hip and down with the kids. I just love it, like slandering vapes for using lithium batteries. <laughs> it's yeah. such a yeah. Well, I, mean, I agree with you. Obviously, yeah, I was going to say. I thought you were big on the environment. Mm. Um, anyway, so there. The, the health secretary said that they're going to introduce this ban before the next general election. It could go through with some already ongoing legislation, some health legislation that's already going through. It could be a specific bill. They haven't announced that yet. Um, Starmer has said that he, surprise, surprise, agrees with the bill, um, but that the government has taken too long to implement it. Should have done it two years ago. So, yeah, being very much the leader of the opposition. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 this, this is going through. And as I say, the most remarkable thing about this really is how it was announced and the fact it was through Lad Bible. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, it, it, there were two genuinely quite serious points we made here. I mean, one, the first is about the implosion of Sunak's social media strategy. I think that's fair to say, because when he came in, everyone was talking about how great he was at social media and how great his branding was and all that sort of thing. But this is just the latest example of some, like, I think cringe is a fair, you know, we yeah. aspire to neutrality here at TLDR News, but I think it's fair to say, like, some pretty cringe social media yeah. stuff. You also saw... Obviously, there was the Lee Anderson interview that he did mm. a while ago. We did a whole episode on this last week. Exactly. Yeah, we did. And then, but then there was also. Did you talk about the uh, the Nigel Farage AI thing that the he did? As well? thing. I don't think that had happened when we recorded it, but that is we also. Should, mad. Yeah. Well, we should just explain what that is. I mean, basically, Sunak did this thing on like the conservative website where you could pay and you could get a sort of personalised message from Sunak being like, "Hi, Zach. You know, I'm working my hardest to stop the boats and bring down inflation." And then obviously someone did one for Nigel Farage. So you have this weird sort of AI mm. version of which he's seen like walking around his house talking about how, hi, Nigel, you know, I'm working so hard to stop the boats. I know yeah. it's your top priority. Um, but yeah, so it's the latest example of like a bit of a social media gaffe, I think it's fair to say, um, from Sunak. But also it's, I, I maybe I'm sort of like getting too deep into this, but ideologically it is quite interesting because... It's quite sort of, I mean, nanny state is a sort of, that's what the Daily Mail would describe yeah. as. It's quite sort of activist. It's quite interventionist. Yeah. It's quite big state. Um, and it's not the sort of politics we're used to seeing, for at least traditionally, from the Conservative Party. And it's not the sort of politics that will necessarily go down well with bits of his own parliamentary party. Because we saw some quite serious opposition to the smoking ban yeah. that we he did, suggested a while I think ago. This, I think this is distinct from that, in that it sort of targets, I think that, Yes, it is big state, and yes, I can see that faction of the Tory party usually being upset about that sort of thing, but I think that the fact that it's targeting people who are underage using vapes and, and are being exposed to nicotine, I just think that they won't form as much opposition as they did to the smoking ban. I don't see there being any significant backlash to You don't this think it's the straw that breaks the camel's no, back? No, I really don't. I, 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 and to be quite honest, did we really see that much backlash for the smoking ban? We saw a little bit, but it wasn't... Well, smoking ban hasn't, hasn't actually happened. No, it has hasn't it? happened, but it, it's it, just it, a plan. Yeah, but yeah. it certainly will. Like, there's, there's, there's no... There'll be some that that will speak out and have smoked for God knows how many years and will will feel like it's government being too interventionist. But I think the numbers will be so small. And I think this is going to be even less likely because it doesn't doesn't stop vaping in the same way that it, the smoking ban just stopped smoking. And it targets mainly people who shouldn't be vaping anyway. So it's not, there's not any sort of real um, the only last thing, thing on, for people on the to smoking ban that I think is interesting is the smoking ban is almost like a copy paste from a mm. policy that originated in New Zealand under yeah. Jacinda Ardern. But that has since been reversed. So, so you know, they announced the policy and then the new New Zealand government have reversed yeah. the smoking ban. Um, so it'd be interesting to see we'll be the only country, basically, that is going with the sort of full-throated smoking ban aimed to eliminate smoking. Mm. Um, anyway, let's get on to uh, the, the meat of the podcast. We are talking about this sort of like, it's, it's like a low, it's like a slow burner of a story, but 
basically over the past like week or so, we've had a series of like conspicuously badly timed polls for Sunak, quite expensive ones, a big MRP poll done by YouGov, published in the Telegraph. Um, they have been funded by like this new, slightly mysterious conservative pressure group. Um, and it's sort of come out in the last couple of days that there is this concerted effort going on behind the scenes by some disgruntled right wing. I think Tory MPs and donors is probably fair to say. Yeah. Who and, want to get rid of Sunak before yeah. the next election. And, and spads. Yeah, that was mm. weird, wasn't it? Well, I, I, we'll get on to the, 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 the one particular spad soon because it's just a very what a spad is, just quickly. Yeah. Yes, it's a special advisor um, who works for the government, but they're usually brought in, generally seen as quite temporary, for a specific prime minister on a specific policy area. Yeah, they're not civil so servants. They're not members of the civil service. Yeah. They're not expected mm. to be neutral. They are very much appointed um, for that specific prime minister. Um, but as I said, we'll, we'll get onto that in a second. But the, the, the pressure group that we're talking about here is um, one called the Conservative Britain Alliance. And as you say, very shady, not much is known about them. We know that um, Lord Frost, as you said at the beginning, you know, very much um, a big player in the old Brexit days, um, is, is involved in this. Um, and he's been sort of approached by Tory whips and said that if any of the backers for this group um, turn out to have funded people like Reform UK and Nigel Farage then he'll lose the whip. He's assured them that they, they're not involved in that, but hasn't given any more information about their names, details, who they are, who they're backing or anything like that. All we know about this Conservative Britain alliance is that they're not massive fans of Rishi Sunak and they're doing as much as they can to cause problems with them. And the, the, the first big thing that they've really done is that massive YouGov poll that cost £40,000 and was funded by the Conservative Britain alliance. Uh, which is kind of, I don't know what to make of, like, is that about what you'd expect for a big poll like that? I suppose it probably is. I think with all these things, it's always weird because when you're thinking, talking about, like, uh, sort of like donor money and politics, your frame of reference is always American because mm. that's the big stories you get. And it's mm. like, you know, spending millions of dollars on campaign ads in Iowa or whatever. And you forget that in the UK, we just yeah, don't have that don't, much yeah, cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just no money for anything. Yeah. Yeah. Boris Johnson's basically a book deal away from becoming prime minister at any time. So. <laughs> yeah. um, so true. But um, yeah, go on. Yeah, so that, that poll found that, um, and we've mentioned this a, a load, but that Labour are on course for 120-seat majority. Um, Tories reduced to 169 seats. So it was like this big damaging poll. And then there were a load of six, you know, polls after that that showed them on this you know, huge 20-something point deficit. Um, the Tories on a 20 something point deficit and all of this. Um, so yeah, they've, they've been they've been sort of causing problems. The only people that that, that we know that are involved is about they've suggested that there are about 10 MPs that were involved in this, like, you know, sometimes referred to as like a rebel alliance, which I think gives them more uh, very Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, very Star Wars, yeah. yeah. Um The Sith Lords of Westminster. Though. Yeah, I think we'll be probably as successful as the um people in Star Wars as well. Very good. But uh, <laughs> although the Rebel uh, right, Alliance <laughs> were very successful in were Star Wars. Okay. That's that's like that's my reference is shit. We look old again. Let's just move on. So so we don't really know how many people are involved in this group. We know that there is probably around 10 MPs that are involved. Simon Clark called for Sunak to go and supposedly briefed a load of papers that there were tons of people that were going to come out and back him and that it was going to be this concerted push, and no one did. It was just him. It was just Simon Clark that came out. I think Andrea Jenkins sort of said something. I think that was before, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but he's supposedly involved in the in the group, or we've got indication that he could be involved. Yeah, no, I, I think that, in anything, that was sort of counterproductive, wasn't it? It does look like it actually made the Tory party more united, mm. Simon Clark's yes. intervention, because you've got that rally around the flag effect, and even sort of like Sunak skeptic MPs 
were saying like now is not the time we yeah. cannot have Pretty a new Patel leader. Was one of them, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It, yeah, we cannot have a new leader before the next election. But there's they are sort of optimistic, aren't they? This like anti Sunak group mm. because they think there are basically going to be two crunch points for mm. Sunak. We've got these by elections coming up in February, and then we have the local elections in May. Or do you think either of those could be could be the thing that well those will both Sunak? be very bad events for Sunak and the Conservative Party generally, you know, as if polling is to be believed, which probably should be at this point. Um, but it feels like we've, we keep getting these like anonymous briefings about, you know, however many dozen Conservative MPs there are actually wanting to get rid of Sunak. But any time it kind of comes to like a crunch moment, they never seem to materialise, whether mm. it's like the Rwanda vote where there are only a few and then they kind of all back down towards the end or like with the Simon Clark rebellion, it was just him and no one else came out to support him. Um, you know, there might be a handful of people saying he needs to go when they lose two by-elections in February, but... They don't have a good track record, do no, they? No, no, everything line. suggests no. that they don't actually have as much power or, as, you know, as They're many numbers as... terrible they... expectation management. Yeah. Like, maybe if you were like, oh, this is like a, you know, this is the first step, but every time they're like, this is it, he's yeah. coming down, yeah. and then there's like three of them vote against it's, like, ah. it's interesting, because the, the, the incentive early on is to try and make it seem like it's this big moment, so you encourage other MPs to back you, but when that doesn't materialise, you're then in a really awkward position where you've kind of got to, you know, do the complete opposite and say, well, this wasn't the moment, there were going to yeah. be other moments and all this. So you really have to try and like build that momentum really quickly because no one's going to want to join a rebellion that's doomed to fail. Yeah. So you've got to make it seem like this rebellion mm. is definitely going to work. We're definitely going to take Sunak down. This is the time. This is the Rwanda vote. We're going to do all of this. And then, you know, it doesn't happen doing that humiliating, you know, back yeah. down. And yeah. that's what we've seen in the last few months. And I'm, I'm with you. I, I, don't see I find it, it, the thing I find just completely baffling is that there are people in the Conservative Party who obviously want to be the next leader, but why would why do they think that doing it before the next election is the optimal time to do it? Like, after the next election, when I guess they might be worried that they'll lose their seat and won't have a chance to run for leadership. Yeah, I think but, that probably is the anxiety. I think they yeah. probably think they, they would do better at the next election than soon. Yeah. I don't even think, think that it's the, lead, the people who want to be leaders that are pushing that too hard. I think that if you do want to be a leader, you probably there's a part of you that thinks that waiting mm. until after the election is better. I just think it's the MPs that are concerned they're about to lose their jobs. Yeah. And if we can just get somebody else in, we might be able to steady the <laughs> ship or, you know, we'll still lose, but maybe not as much. I don't think it's necessarily like leadership ambitions that's driving this. I think it's more MPs concerned about losing their seats. The, yeah, so I think we're all sceptical, basically, that this is going to come to mm. anything. But the only caveat I think I would put in there is at the by-elections and obviously the local elections is if reform actually perform mm. well. Because, so reform are currently polling at like 12%. People who don't know, reform are this like sort of, they're the, the successor to UKIP, maybe, or the successor to the Brexit party. Um, and they're currently led by Richard, Richard Tice, yes. who is just not Nigel Farage, not a very good politician. Um, but there's been a lot of anxiety, especially on the right of the Tory party, that the Tories are going to start losing votes, you know, to reform on the right, and then having already lost a whole, whole load of votes to Labour in the centre and the left. Um, and that, that is what really could turn this into like a catastrophic loss for the, the Tories. There's something similar happened to the Canadian Conservatives mm. in 1993 yeah. um, when they lost votes to both sides and then ended up just dying as a party. But so far, even though they've polled okay, even though that reform, according to the latest got poll, polling like 12, 13%, which is really quite high. I mean, it's only like seven points behind the Tories. Um, they never materialise at actual elections. So like by-elections, you don't see reform yeah. actually performing well. And... This, the obvious answer this is that people are like in protest uh, saying, oh, I'll vote for reform. And then when it actually gets to the ballot box, it's just they don't, they don't really want reform. Um, but if reform actually do start 
performing well in those local elections. I think that's always that the anxiety will really tick up a notch. Um, and I then, then think you could actually possibly see like a panic removal mm-hmm. of Rishi Sunak. And I don't know who they get back. I mean, Kemi Bardnock seems to be like the, yeah. the top choice. Yeah. Um, but that is, I think, when you get into real like crunch time for the Tories and they might get spooked. I think obviously the other thing here is Nigel Farage. And if Nigel Farage does ref- return to reform, then you can imagine reforms polling going up by mm. like a couple of points and people actually voting for him. I um, think as well, it's just so worth saying that 12 points in the polls is is just huge. I, I know that I, I agree with you, it won't materialise. I agree that that... that, that You've got to treat that with a pinch of salt, but that's that's what the Lib Dems are currently polling on, and they're the spinners above the Lib Dems. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, the some of the poll trackers put them basically level, okay. but it's, it's maybe slightly higher. But yeah, around the ten mark is what the Lib Dems are on at the minute, and they're predicted to have a resurgence back to 2005. And now, obviously, even more caveat supply with that because first past the post, you know, the Lib Dems concentrate their votes, whereas Brexit, uh, not the reform vote, is going to be split across the UK, so they're not going to do as well. What was that? Like, there was an election where UKIP won 14% of the vote and got one seat. One seat it was 2015, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's not that, but it's, as you say, the, the, the bigger point with that is how much they're going to be detracting from the Tories. And I absolutely agree. If we see any sort of semblance of um, a, a reform UK vote in, in council elections or by elections, then, then I, I really can see the momentum shifting yeah. upwards. For And I think that the, the in all of the things that have been written about this, about this plot to undermine uh, Sunak, they see the next three months as like the crucial time. Um, because of these two votes um, to, to get rid of suits. So if they're going to do it, these next three months, some time between these two votes yeah. will be the time. And if they don't do it in that, in, in you know, then, then it would definitely yeah. have I mean, at that the point, election. They're so, you're so close to the next election that whoever, if someone does replace him, that they really don't have long to radically turn things around. No, but I think you get you, the, the advantage there is you get to sell yourself on I haven't had enough time. Oh, yeah. But I'm yeah, new give me a and chance. I'm different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Kenny Barnock would sell herself on like I'm actually tough on immigration. Yeah. They're not this yeah. like soft liberal sooner. <laughs> I'm actually gonna fix it. Yeah. I don't have the time. Um which I mean mm. to be honest, I genuinely think she would do a better job with would be reform voters than Sunak anyway. But I think yeah, and I think it's interesting because when we start this conversation, I basically was gonna dismiss this is all nonsense. But I do think that it's not it's a non-trivial chance that reform perform well enough to put real pressure on Sunak mm. at either of those sets of elections. Um, is that everything we have with that? Yeah, I just, I mentioned this earlier about the, the spad, so I did just want to return okay, to yeah, this. Cool, sorry. There is, um, so there, there's a guy, have you heard of this guy called Will Dry? Yeah. You both heard of him. So I hadn't yeah. heard of him until this. Oh, I, yeah, I only heard of him since. since yeah, this I don't think anyone heard of yeah. him. No, but it's just, it's just so he's, he's um, 26. He's the, he co-founded a group called Our Future, Our Choice, which was an EU advocacy group specifically for younger people, so quite left-wing. Um, and this was after he'd supposedly voted leave, then went back to basically wanting to, to rejoin, advocated for a second referendum, stuff like that. Then he was employed um, by Sunak after he, t- he took charge after Liz Truss. He doesn't have like an opportunist at all. I mean, yeah, he's... I know, as, as a spaz. And he's, been descri- he's, he's, 20, he's 26 years old, um, and he's been described by some people as like Dominic Cummings-esque. And he resigned uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he's supposedly part of this this group to try and undermine Sunak, and it is, is part of like you know, it's about, apparently about ten, twelve um, spads that were all working to try and undermine him as part of this this rebel group. But I just I'd never heard of this guy at all, and his career trajectory is just mad. He's, he's like speed running a political career basically yeah, by yeah. the sounds of it. He is, but... but isn't it also just a bit embarrassing, like the level of yeah. political discourse in this country, the fact that we've actually got like headlines about some twenty six year old bloke. I mean, he's just a spad. He's a mm. fired spad. You can imagine ten, yeah, I mean, ten former spads feeling like they're kind of in a you know, yeah. really 
I don't it's, think it's a really Westminster it. bubble story yeah. is what I'm getting at yeah. here. And I, it will have very little import Absolutely. on the trajectory of the UK. Well, just the UK generally, won't it? I mean, it's just sort of irrelevant. I just get irked when, like, you know, we dedicate, like, a, you know, like a Telegraph dedicates, like, a whole yeah. page to... And not about you instead. I don't want to be on the Telegraph. <laughs> Desperately not. Yeah, um, that's fair. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to the, the fun bit of the podcast, the Global Leader Leaderboard. Okay, so welcome to the World Leader Leaderboard. For those of you who don't know what's going on, this is when each of the sort of guests picks a politician who's had a good week, uh, or since we last did the podcast, and someone's had a bad week and we move them up or down. Um, just to stress, as always, this is not a reflection of our personal politics. This is just from that politician's perspective, had they had a good week, you know, as have they achieved their goals or, or fallen short of them. Rory, do you want to start and do you want to give us who's going down? Yes. Um, going down for me is um, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, for one main obvious reason. I think we probably have a, there's a, two sides to this probably, but I think overall he's going down because of the ICJ uh, provisional ruling on the genocide case, which basically, the, the ICJ basically said South Africa's allegations of genocide against Israel are plausible, plausible enough to continue with the case, and they've issued a load of measures that Israel technically is uh, has to comply by, but whether it actually does will remains to be seen. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about what the impact on Israel might be. And some people could say, you know, this might strengthen Israel and kind of emboldening it against like the kind of institutions that have sided against Israel and that kind of thing. But I think fundamentally it's bad for Israel that they are now going to spend the next two years or so on trial for genocide effectively uh, for alleged genocide. And I also think it does sort of galvanize the, the kind of pro-Palestine anti-Israel movements in various countries. So this there's a lot of people making the case that countries like the UK and others should stop uh, exporting weapons and kind of uh, doing any kind of military assistance with Israel because of this ICJ ruling. Um, and it kind of provides like some legitimacy that is mu- a lot harder to kind of just sweep aside um, when kind of people are saying, you know, we should do this country should do X, Y, and Z because of what Israel's doing in Gaza. Um, but I think, yeah, fundamentally, it's, it's yeah, bad. Yeah, I think it's basically unequivocally bad yeah. for Israel, surely. I mean, like, you're right to mention that Israel hasn't paid much heed yeah. to what international institutions, especially UN-led ones, have said so far. But I do, of course, in, like, the... The, the, the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and bad. also just politically, it's yeah, just a terrible, terrible. look politically. Yeah. Um, and even if you're already isolated, it's worse to be yeah. even more aggressively isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Ben, who is going down for you? Yeah, so um, Victor Orban is going down as a Hungary's Prime Minister. Um, basically, he's been threatened by Brussels. So well, he's been threatening to um, veto a Ukraine aid package. Brussels hit back and has now said that they're going to, well, they're going to sort of explicitly target Hungary's economic weaknesses and imperil its currency if they do actually proceed with this veto. So this was... Um, the sort of secret documents that were seen by the FT originally um, about this. So, you know, it looks like as much as Auburn has been sort of trying to exert his influence and been able to sort of um, use his position to, to push through this veto, it looks like the EU isn't just going to sort of like roll over and let him. They're going to sort of push back quite hard. So it's not a particularly great look for Auburn. I think this is genuinely like such a fascinating story. I think it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. The first, I think, is that it's sort of a demonstration. I don't want to sound too pretentious when I say this, but that everything, in a sense, is political, ultimately. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Orban is legally protected insofar as there's, like, legal limits on what the EU, like, can do to him. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he, like, legally has this veto that's enshrined in, like, EU statute. Um, 
But it's one of those things where if there's sufficient sense in the EU that we need to punish Orban, we need to coerce him into doing something. Uh, an EU official actually even described it as blackmail, but mm. they basically justified it in terms that Orban's been blackmailing us with his veto for ages. We're not to blackmail him back. Um, that people can force you to do stuff yeah. if you want to do it. Um, the other reason I think it's really, really interesting is, is it demonstrates the fact that basically every developed state is reliant on international capital markets mm. for financing. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we, us humble Brits, learned during the Liz, Liz Truss era because it was... Wasn't I mean when the you know Liz Truss's mini budget went to pieces? It wasn't because I don't know, like British citizens or like British pensioners were deciding, like, oh, I don't want to get trust my money with this government. It's because international capital markets decided they didn't want to trust their money um, with with the UK government, and that is it provided basically, I mean, really quite a hard constraint on Liz Truss's like not just her like economic power, but like her political power, and that's actually quite a new phenomenon. I mean, like for most of the twentieth century. Um, governments mainly finance their borrowing by borrowing just off their citizenry. So that you just borrow, you know, if you're the British government, you would just borrow off Brits. And then because obviously there's just more capital available and it's more efficient and, and there's not so much of a competed, like a, a difficult politics to it um, in the late 20th century and obviously now, um, these countries started borrowing off international capital markets. And it sort of makes sense in the short term, but it like changes the politics of borrowing um, and it, means you have this very, very hard constraint on what you can and can't do. Um, because if you're like Hungary and you just need international capital markets to like function financially without sort of collapsing into autarky, then the EU can leverage that in, in really, really powerful ways. Um, but yeah, so I do think that's that's interesting. The last thing I say is there are some countries that don't really do it. Like Italy is a really interesting example of a country that mainly borrows off its citizenry, which is one of the reasons why when basically the EU is trying to get Italy to default on some of its bonds, they're like, we can't do that because that wouldn't mean like, oh, we're not giving money to the Germans or to like some big, you know, multinational mm. American corporation. That means we're not giving money back to Italians, which would be cause a massive recession. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that, that that is an interesting thing. I think that's a great story. And uh, I also think it's another story about the, the EU showing a little bit of geopolitical agency. You know, the EU has been quite like soft and soppy yeah. for a while. And now <laughs> it's, you know, it's getting a little bit harder. Yeah. On its own member state, which yeah, is kind yeah, of fun. true. But, but also, yeah, it's, it's a symptom of more general trend. Yeah, yeah but a fair point. Mm. Um, anyway, who is going? I guess we're doing up now. Aren't yeah, we? yeah. I can do my person going up. Yeah, um, please. I'm moving um, Erdogan up, Turkish president, uh, mainly because of the US uh, finally approving it sales of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Yeah, not at all related to the Sweden no, NATO completely thing. separate. I mean, we're talking about blackmail and stuff like that. You know, this is just another another one of those situations. But it's just been this long-running saga intertwined with all sorts of things. Uh, most recently, the Swedish NATO bid, which Turkey has now approved. Um, Do you still want to flesh Hungary, that out a little bit? So, yeah, yeah, so Sweden obviously applied to join NATO uh, alongside Finland. Finland eventually made it in relatively quickly. Sweden's was held up mostly by Turkey because Turkey accused Sweden of effectively harboring Kurdish terrorists and Turkey was demand... Did I say Kurdish terrorists? Yeah. Not, yeah, Kurdish terrorists. So Turkey was demanding that Sweden toughen up its, like, um, anti-terror laws, its... Uh, and crack down specifically yes. on Kurdish, like, yeah. separatist groups. What's the word for... Uh, <laughs> like deporting some extraditing extradition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. extradition laws. Um, and Sweden made some moves to do that, uh, hoping to kind of get Turkey on side. And it seemed like they had, and then Turkey kind of continued to like stall the application and then started linking it to this kind of, this uh, deal for F-16 fighter jets that had kind of been put on ice um, with the US. 
And there's been a lot of behind the scenes negotiating between the US and Turkey. And now the White House has finally approved that sale. Um, and uh, I think it has, still has to go through Congress, but I think it is expected to. Um, so Erdogan, it's kind of just proof. He, you know, he leveraged his his veto very effectively and it went He's pretty well king. for him. He is the king of geopolitics. <laughs> I'm not even joking. That man just gets what he wants. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the uh, yeah, I think we should, yeah, the, the thing I'll say on that as well is that when uh, so Turkey didn't explicitly link the F-16s yeah. to the, the accession, but they did a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And it's very entertaining because like only a year ago, uh, the foreign minister was asked, like, is this about the F-16s? Come on, but, and he was like, how dare you? How dare you accuse us of yeah. playing politics yeah. with NATO succession? Um, and then obviously that's exactly what it was. And I think if you asked him today, he'd still say like, no, it's just yeah. a coincidence. Yeah. They just happened to be timing. approved at the same time. Um mm. Yeah I, yeah, I think that's a great story. The only caveat I would say is I do think Erdogan uh, has a bit of a problem in that the Turkish economy is still struggling and the lira is still declining, despite mm. the fact that he has basically s- completely reversed um, his sort of unorthodox sort of Islamic-inspired monetary policy that he was pursuing for the last couple of years, which basically involved just like never, ever raising interest rates. Mm. Um, and he's introduced some like, uh, like a very orthodox central banker and finance minister but they haven't done enough to, to basically stem the sort of capital outflows that are currently going on in Turkey. Um, ben, who is going up for you? Well, um, it's Fumio Kishida. Um, he's climbing. He is climbing. He is climbing. So uh, I think it, it was last week that I did, uh, as my underreported story, something about the Japanese moon landing and the fact that they lost control. I can already see you're not too, no, too thrilled about this. Um, but they, I think they became like the fifth or sixth nation ever to land something on the moon. So it was sort of a big moment. Um, and they lost control of the sort of the, the rover because of um, it was sort of parked in the wrong bit. So it couldn't get light on it. So it couldn't recharge. They turned it off for about a week. To try and, and, and it wasn't certain that the, the mission would even continue. wasn't certain they'd be able to like recharge the, the mission. But as of this weekend, it was able to. They've continued with it. And, you know, it's not, not that, you know, it's, it's back on track. It's, mm. it's going. And the, I think this is a big moment for them. You know, it's, um, you know, you've, you've one of only a very small number of nations to have ever been able to land on the moon. And not only have they done that, but the mission looks like it could actually be successful in the end. So that's, that's very good news. It's very good news. The screen's going up. Lucky. That's why it's going to be at the top of the board very soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lucky. It's gone up two episodes in a row. Yeah, yeah. yeah Very different reasons, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Probably like the least popular leader on that board, and he's somehow not the bottom. <laughs> well, Putin yeah. is well, at popular, the top. Domestically popular. Yeah. Kishida domestically not very mm. popular. Anyway. Fair enough. Uh, I think that is everything for today. Um, thank you very much for watching. Um, we hope you enjoyed the episode of the podcast. And if you feel like it, please do support the channel by buying one of our newspapers. We really are proud of them and we really do think they are, they are quite good. Um, anyway, thank you very much. And if you're a big fan of the channel, I will see you again on Thursday. All right. <laughs> well, there you go.